Well, we're uh, we're going to read the Bible together, and uh, we do that here at City Light because uh, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. As I said, we're currently in a series looking at the Book of Matthew, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're looking at Chapter Six today, centers nineteen through twenty-four. It's going to be on the screen behind you, or it's in our uh, blue church Bibles on page eight eleven. Uh, chapter Six, sentence nineteen through to twenty-four. Jesus speaking, speaking to his followers about how to live as uh, his people. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor the rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in, in, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And welcome. Uh, my name is Jeremy, I'm one of the pastors here. Great you could be here with us as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and uh, it was great to hear um, uh, Mark interviewed before as he was talking about his clash tattoos and whatnot. I imagine he was like a, a real like um, CEO kind of cowboy, or, like rock up to work late, you know, on a skateboard in boardies. He'd just be like, rock up to a board meeting and be like, cowabunga dudes, let's chill out about the KPIs, guys, you know. Um, but uh, a great image to sort of keep in your mind as we trek forward. <laughs> But um, the, this afternoon we're looking at, uh, we've come to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've been with us for any number of weeks, you know that Jesus pulls no punches no matter what topic we're looking at. Um, but money is no different. And as Jesus speaks on this, he speaks directly to us. Um, and it is, it's an interesting one to look at, and I can see why Jesus uh, picked this out in talking to his disciples, because money has an interesting impact on us. It's a weird thing. I don't know if you were into reality TV or in particular into the block over the last little while, but my wife and I had tuned in towards the end of the season. Uh, it happens the same every year. We, kind of, we miss the first half and then somehow towards the end we kind of get caught up in the finals weeks. But um, last weekend, if you kind of had marked it out in your calendars, was the final. And if you're unfamiliar with kind of the premise for the show, it works like this. They each have an apartment to renovate and uh, each week you, they do pretty much one room and it's revealed and then judged, and then if you win, you get more cash so you can do better on your other rooms, all that kind of stuff, right? And the series kind of goes on. But it finishes at the end. The grand finale is the auction. They auction off all the apartments, and the show gives them a reserve, so kind of a rough evaluation of the apartment, and anything they get over that, they get to take home, and it's tax-free. So whatever they make, they keep. And so they're making big amounts, and the first couple, straight out the gates, I'm pretty sure... Um, made 700000 on the first apartment. And so once people saw it, they thought, there's a feeding frenzy going on here. This is going to go mental. And so the next couple, I'm pretty sure it was the second couple came in, was where we kind of tuned into the show. And, uh, and they made, they were up to about 200000 over their reserve, and the bidding started to slow down. And it was starting to slow down to denominations of like five or 1000 And you could tell when that happens, you're probably only maybe 30 or 50 a K away from the end. And so they got to about 280, and I think they kind of crept over to maybe like 305,000 in terms of profit. 
and the auctioneer is, is trying to milk it for all it's worth. He's saying, going once, going twice, which, by the way, there, there are no rules on. You can say that as many times as you want. But anyway, uh, he continues on saying that, and it's drying up. He even gets one of the people who's bidding for it. He takes them aside and says, look, you know this apartment's worth a lot more. You know, we're not quite happy with the price. Are you happy to put more in? And of course, of course he's like, no. Like, <laughs> do you know how an auction works? You bid and then you get it, right? Uh, or like, oh yeah, out of the kindness of my heart, I really am ripping them off. Here's another 200K, like whatever. But he goes back into the room where the couple are because they're watching the auction happen. And he's almost, the tone is of, like kind of commiseration. Like it's, it's very conciliatory and he's you know, saying to them, look, I think this is probably all we're going to get out of it. It's still good and all that kind of stuff. Now, the mental thing at this point is they're about to take home $305,000 and they're feeling a bit down about it. And if you, but the, the interesting thing is if you'd rewound a year and you said to them before they started the show, hey, do you want to come on this show, renovate an apartment, and you'll make three hundred five dollars for about three months' work, they would have been over the moon. They would not have been able to believe their luck. But all of a sudden, because someone else got seven hundred. dollars now 300 feels like you've lost. And the, the, the happy news is that I actually got much more and greed won and everything went really well. But, um, but it's funny, look, and the, the couples aren't, they aren't greedy, they aren't different to you and I, but money has an interesting impact. It's so relative, isn't it? That you can go from, from seeing that amount of cash as a gift to seeing it as almost a loss. It's interesting, years ago when I used to um, teach scripture in high schools, I would do this with a class, I'd say to them, Put your hand up if, uh, if right now I gave you 500 bucks, you would be happier. And of course, all the hands go up. And with the year seven classes, they're, they're extra fast because they think it might really happen. They're so cute and naive. Um, but, um, but I say, all right, keep your hands up. And then I say, uh, keep your hand up if you also have something in your life that is worth so much to you that you wouldn't swap it for a billion dollars. And predictably, the hands generally really stay up. And so there's this interesting thing where... On one hand, we believe that even just a little bit more money would make us happier, and yet we all have something that's so precious that we wouldn't give it up for all the money in the world. And it's kind of a weird contradiction. Is it, is it true that money makes us happier, or are the best things in life free, and which one is it? We have a funny relationship with money, but here's something else that it does. Did you know that the more money you have, the less likely you are to believe in God? If you earn less than $20,000, about 70% or plus, will believe in God or, or say they do. But once you go over 60K and then for every income bracket up and above that, it drops down to 56% and then continues to drop. What do you do with that kind of statistic? One theory is this, that uh, basically Christianity is a naive superstition and for people who don't have a lot in this life or don't have much going for them, they need some kind of vague hope to hold on to. And the rich people really have the answer that really... Life is found in having stuff, and when you have enough stuff, you'll be completely happy. That's one, that's one way you could interpret those statistics. The other one is to take Jesus' words that we're going to look at this afternoon pretty seriously when he says, no one can have two masters. You will love either God or money. And when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that if you follow the statistics by individuals or even by entire countries... Jesus' words 2,000 years later are still true. See, it is possible that maybe like the super mega rich have the answers and life is just perfect up that end. But there are magazines devoted to detailing their misery, I mean, whether true or supposed. But there's enough skepticism in us to believe that that's probably not the case. 
And that what Jesus is saying here has some traction, that it is the case that you cannot serve two masters. It will be God or money. There's room in our hearts for one overruling desire and it will be the God or money, not both. And for those that have a lot of treasure, their heart is not for God. And as we dig into this this afternoon, I pray that Jesus would be revealing to us what he was revealing 2,000 years ago, that there is one great eternal heavenly treasure. Let's pray that that would be the case. Father God, we praise you that you are gracious, that you are infinitely more valuable than anything our hands can possess. You are the God of glory, unmeasured in greatness, eternally good. You are unwaveringly just. You are perfectly holy. God, we pray that you would give us a glimpse this afternoon of your incomparable worth. You would show yourself glorious over and against earthly treasure, that you would overwhelm our hearts with a vision of your greatness. And we pray that you might do this, that we might fear you rightly, know that you are the God of nations, that you are a God not to be trifled with, the God who sent Christ as a blood sacrifice for our sin, the one who holds the keys to death and life. And we pray that we'd see you rightly this afternoon, that we might glorify you in our lives. And we pray this, for the sake of your name. Amen. When Matthew 6, Jesus kicks off this part of his sermon in this way. It'll come up on the screen for you in sentence 19. He starts by saying this, Do not lay out for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay out for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice in this section what Jesus does and does not say. He does not say, do not store up for yourself material possessions. Or he doesn't say, do not store up for yourself just earthly possessions. That's kind of a neutral term. What he says is, do not store up for yourself treasures. And that's different. Treasures are material possessions that we possess, but in some part they also possess us. A treasure is something that our heart is attached to, our deepest desires are connected to. It's not just a thing, it's something precious to us, it's something that we care about, it's something that we're invested in more than just any other thing. It's not a thing in our life that can just come or go, that we can take it or leave it. A treasure is something that we delight in. And Jesus says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. See, the truth is, possessions, things, material stuff, however you want to say it, these items have no value in and of themselves. They only have the value that we give to them. It struck me recently when we were away on holidays, uh, our boys were playing pirates, as kids do. I don't know where. They've never seen any pirate shows, but they've got the vibe of it. And they've also got the, they've also got the gist that pirate games always revolve around a treasure. So they're all, pirates are after treasure. That's the main kind of story going on. And I said to Asher, what's, what's in the treasure chest? And he said... Gold and chocolate. <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's amazing. So pirates will spend their life like killing people, murderous, whatever, because they're sick for some gold bullion, but they are also greedy for a bit of chocky. <laughs> and, and as I started to reflect on it, I thought, well, it wouldn't make sense, because they've got a lot of gold teeth, and I'd always assumed it's just because they love gold. It's not. They have a lot of enamel sort of cavities and that sort of work to work through. So just, it's beautiful, right? Um, they, um, as much as they pursue gold bullion, they love a Twix. And, um, and, but it was interesting because I thought, all right, imagine, and like, you know, it's obvious that a kid would do that. 
But I thought, imagine if you were to sit down with Asha and try and convince him that those two things were incredibly different in value. It would be very hard to do. And for the plain reason that kids, honestly, if you put before them a gold brick or some gold coins, the ones with the chocolate inside, it would be a no-brainer for them which one they would take. Because for them, the gold has no value to them. The chocolate, that is, there's an immediate reward there. But for the other thing, it makes no sense to them. For us, we have a whole worldview that puts a value on it, that we understand how we could use that and what we could get and how we could, what we could do with it that gives it a value. But putting those two things in front of a child, they don't get it. Because things have no value in and of themselves. They have the value that we give to them. And this is what Jesus is saying. You've heard the phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and it's because the items themselves have no objective value. They have a value that we give them. And so for one person, something that's incredibly valuable means nothing to someone else and vice versa. It might be the case that you have a car and that's incredibly precious to you. But for someone else, it's just a means of transport. For you, you might have clothes and they're, they're a treasure to you. But for someone else, it's just a way of not being naked. For, for, for some of us, you might have an artwork on your wall and all it is is just covering up a blank space or a dent or somewhere where you couldn't be bothered painting. And for other people, it's a treasure. Things have no value in and of themselves. It's the value that we give to them. And why? Jesus says because of the heart. He says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Something becomes a treasure when our heart becomes connected to it. In the Bible, the heart represents the deepest human desires that we have, the strongest and most serious desires that we have. And Jesus is saying when those desires become attached to a thing, it becomes a treasure. A material thing plus the heart equals a treasure. See, if you have a car and it's not just a thing, it's your treasure and it gets stolen or dented, you'll be furious. If you have clothes and they get damaged or someone borrows them and returns them back and they're they're ruined, you will not just be upset about it, you'll be devastated. If you have an artwork that's stolen and it wasn't just a painting on a wall, it mattered to you, you'll be furious. Things become treasures when our heart is attached to them. And so Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but treasure in heaven. And that leaves us with a couple of questions. The first one would be, well, how does the heart become so attached to material things? And why this thing over that thing? The other one would be, how how is it that if Jesus is saying, don't do this and do do this, how do you detach your heart from earthly things and attach it to this heavenly treasure? And what is this heavenly treasure? Well, he doesn't leave us wondering for long. In the final verse, in 24, Jesus clears it up for us when he says this. No, it'll come up on the screen for you, Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is explaining what he's talking about. He's not talking about two vague categories of this earthly treasure stuff and heavenly treasure. He sums it up. There's money and there's God, and you can't serve both. He says you will love one and hate the other. He says you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. One of these will master the other, not both. This will be no co-regency in your heart. See, if you think about it, I mean, what, what are we talking about when we talk about love? Love is when you desire something that brings you joy. And the more joy that thing brings you, the more you'll love it. Love is an attraction towards something, someone, whatever it is. And the stronger, the more joy that thing brings you, the more attracted you will be to that, whether that's a person or a thing or whatever it is. But Jesus is saying, 
while we can have many kind of loves, little L loves that can cohabit together, you can love chocolate, you can love an afternoon out and a meal and time with friends and all of those things, there will be one capital L love that will rule them all. You have space in your heart for one thing that you desire above all else. There will be one thing that you believe will bring you ultimate happiness and whatever that thing is, that will be the ruling affection of your heart. Your life will be organized around that one thing. It will set the priorities for what you do. Whatever you capital L love, Jesus says, is your master. It will rule you. It will determine what you love and what you hate. It will determine your priorities in life and your relationships. It will determine what you sacrifice for. And Jesus is saying, you cannot capital L love money and God at the same time. God will not have it. It's logically impossible. One will, will decide over the other. You cannot simultaneously believe that all joy is found in money and all joy is found in God. It's one or the other. And if you believe that it's money, it will rule your life. So here's a question worth asking. Why, why is it that we love money? It's not the currency, is it? Nobody is just looking to, no one is in love with Australia. In fact, our currency is mocked the world over. But it's also the safest, so keep that in mind, uh, haters. But why is, it, why is it that we actually love money? Why can it have so much power over so many lives and so many different lives who seem to have so many different priorities? Why is it that money can rule over so many? A lot of it has to do with our fears. Because our fears will cause us to do interesting things. I read a book a few years ago, and it was a biography on Hitler. And there are, there are so many bios that have been written on Hitler. Um, that this one, it was written by Serene Kershaw, and he had to justify why it is that he was going to write another Hitler bio. What is this going to add into the mix that's going to be useful? And so he starts by saying this. This was the question that he wanted answered when he considered the life of Hitler. He said, How could such a bizarre misfit ever have been in a position to take power in Germany, a modern complex, economically developed, culturally advanced country. When you consider who Hitler was, and this isn't just an exaggeration because it's easy to hate on him, no one's going to pick on you for going hard at Hitler, are they? But it's not an exaggeration. He was a misfit. He was Interpersonally, he was very weird. He held weird habits. He wasn't great with managing teams. He wasn't organized. He was a mess. He couldn't even get into art school, let alone finish it, and he was an average artist anyway. He could speak. He had a gift in terms of speaking powerfully. But looking at his transcripts, the evidence would be that he really just said the same thing over and over and over. There was nothing new, and yet he won over intellectuals. And so it raised the question in people's minds, how did that guy get in charge of that country and those people? And his thesis, Ian Kershaw's thought on how this happened was around one psychologist's view of charismatic authority. That's the idea of, of a gifted personality who finds themselves in an incredible position of leadership. And he says, Charismatic authority did not rest on the outstanding qualities of the individual. Rather, it rested on the perception of such qualities among a following, which, during a crisis, gives the leader heroic attributes and the sense that he is a saviour. That was his understanding. It wasn't that Hitler was an extraordinary person, but he gave enough to give the sense that he had these heroic attributes. And during a time of crisis, of German national identity crisis, when they felt humiliated by losing the First World War and all the economic hardships that were upon them, they, their fear of humiliation 
made him seem like a saviour. He himself was an unexceptional person, but found himself in an exceptional position. Fear makes people do crazy things. He tapped into the national fear of humiliation and was seen as a saviour. Money taps into our deepest fears and often presents itself as the saviour that will redeem us from them. If your greatest fear is humiliation, then money is the answer because you will have power and people will respect you and they'll have to respect you because you have an objective number that puts a value on how powerful you are. When you drive a certain car or you have a certain lifestyle, people can say what they want about you, but they can't deny that you've made it. If your fear is humiliation, money will seem like a savior because it will give you power. If your greatest fear is rejection, then money will give you what you want because people will like you and want to be around you if you have it. You'll be able to have the best parties. You'll be able to, to do certain things and go on certain holidays and be at certain events and in certain places where people will want to be around you too. And if your greatest fear is rejection, money will give you an answer. If your greatest fear is stress or demands and, and you want a life that's free from those kind of things, money will give it to you. You won't have to worry about stuff. If things break, you can get another one. You'll have the best food, the best car, the best lifestyle. You'll live comfortably. You'll be able to holiday when you want and where you want. Money will be the answer to your fear of stress. And if your greatest fear is uncertainty, money will present itself as a savior. It will give you control. You will finally be able to have control over your life. All the variables that come in that threaten to knock your life apart, you will know it's fine because I've got enough money to cover it. I'll be fine. Money taps into our fears and presents itself as a a saviour. That's how things go from being just things to being attached to our heart to being a treasure. Because they're not just things. These are the answers to our fears. These are the things that save us from what we fear most. See, it is the case that whatever we love will be our master. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't store up treasures here on earth but store up treasure in heaven. He says, and he's, he's talking about no vague thing. He's talking about God himself, that God would be your treasure. Jesus can say this because of who he is. When you understand who Jesus was and why he's there speaking about this, it makes sense as to why he gives us this kind of warning. See, the truth is that we have loved false gods. We have capital L loved things that should have only been God that have become gods in his place, that we've trusted our lives to and become enslaved to even. In sin, we have loved what we should not have loved. And the reason Jesus is on earth speaking this to this crowd is because he was the one true God come down to die for their sin, that he would be the one who is actually worthy of worship, who came and stood among them, who laid his life down instead of taking away ours, who was nailed to the cross, who was dead and buried, who was crushed under the wrath of God and then rose again, with the keys to life and death in his hand, to say that anyone who believes in him now has indestructible life. This is why he's to be our only true treasure. This is why he's the only one who can really answer and address our true fears. See, the truth is, if you fear humiliation, then Christ should be your treasure. Because in him, you are victorious. And no matter what happens in this life, your eternity is set and guaranteed. You need not fear humiliation, for in Christ we will ultimately be victorious. Every emperor, every ruler, every king, every billionaire will eventually be humiliated by death. No matter what they have gained, they cannot buy their way out of death. Death will cause all of us to surrender. Power is an illusion, but in Christ we are free. 
If your fear is approval, then Christ is your treasure because in him he has died and taken your place and you are now declared righteous in Jesus forever. And so the whole world could stand to condemn you and yet, as it says in Romans, if God is for you, who can be against you? God is to be your treasure. If your fear is stress or demands, then Jesus, there is no peace like the peace of Christ. That no matter how well you try to organize your life or how much you try to avoid it, things will happen and they're out of your control. And yet Jesus walks through, through all of that with us and grants us a peace that transcends understanding. If your fear is uncertainty, then Christ is your treasure because he has made certain what happens after death and what happens before that becomes almost irrelevant in light of eternity. We cannot gain control out of, over our lives, but our lives in Christ are safe. So there are many things that money promises to, live, to deliver and yet it can't. It's a false God. Death ultimately will make a mockery of them. And yet in Christ, we have a real answer to what we really should fear and he has taken it away. That's why he says, don't store up things on earth because every one of those will disappear before we die and if it doesn't, it will be swallowed up in death. And yet the victory of Christ is that passes through that. And so if this is the case and Jesus' warning is real, do not store up treasure on earth, but store it up in heaven. Know God and your relationship with him then how is it that this should impact our lives? Is it simply enough that uh, we should just say, look, let's just be more thankful for what we have in Jesus and, and call it an eye? I think the most obvious application would be this. If Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, then it should be the case that the way that we use earthly possessions should demonstrate that our treasure is Christ. We should use our earthly in such a way that it demonstrates that Christ is our treasure and not those very things. Jesus says when it comes to money, you will love one and hate the other. And so our relationship with Jesus and with things should be so stark in difference between love and hate that it would almost look as though we hated them. That our love for him would set our priorities in such a way that it would demonstrate that we have one master and it is not money. If Christ is our treasure, our lives should be marked by radical generosity. The opposite of storing things up is not just not having things because you have nothing to store, but being generous with those things. And so I think this means a couple of things. And the first one I think it means is this. Be generous now. It means being generous now. If you're convinced that Christ is your treasure, it means being generous now. Sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that once I have more stuff, I will become generous. Right now, things are tight, but one day I'll have like, money to give away, and at that point, I will actually become generous. But the problem is that Jesus says the matter is of the heart. Whatever heart you have now, you take with you into the next season. And if it's not doing things now that you're hoping it will, what reason do we have to think that it will later? It's a little bit like if you were like, at a uni, I was a, a hopeless procrastinator. And maybe many of you are experiencing that now or continue to, whatever it is. But procrastination, if you, if you were to boil it down to one thing, procrastination is this. It's the belief that if I do nothing, somehow, in some way, things are going to radically turn around for the better. That if I actually do nothing, without doing anything, the circumstances are going to change dramatically in my favor. And the problem is that sometimes they do. So sometimes you put off doing an assignment, and just before it's due like it's cancelled or it's given an extension. And you're like, I knew it. Procrastination works. Or you've double booked 
and you've told two people that you're going to be at their place and it's at the same time and you don't want to be the bad guy either so you just wait and wait and it's on the day and one of them cancels the event and you're like, see, this is how it's meant to work out, right? It's a win-win. But most of the time, it doesn't work. Deadlines roll through and it just wreaks havoc and it doesn't actually work out for us. Procrastination is the belief that somehow without doing anything, our circumstances are going to suddenly change. And I think sometimes we think the same with generosity. That we think somehow, at some point in the future, I'm just going to miraculously become generous. But Jesus says, where our heart is, your treasure will be. And our spending will always rise to meet our income. If our heart right now is not generous, then when we get more stuff, we'll spend it on exactly the same type of things we're spending it on now. Our economy is set up to ensure that you'll find new ways to spend more money. The time to be generous is right now. In rare circumstances, it may be the case, a medical emergency, uh, crippling debt or something like that, where the priority is to pay off a certain amount and it has to be that way, fine. But for most of us, that's not the case. And if you're convincing yourself that you've only got a little bit of money now, but you'll be generous later on, it will not happen. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your heart is right now is where that income that you'll get later on will go. And it's, it's silly to think this way for two reasons. One, because if we don't send our, um, change our mindset now or think differently about money now, there's no reason to think that we will. But also, Jesus hasn't guaranteed that we'll have more days. Our days right now are a gift. So the time right now to be generous, to show our love for Christ and what he has done for us in the gospel is now. So I'd urge you to do that. But the second one is this. It means being generous in the long term. Our culture would say, set yourself up for long-term security. And Jesus would say, set yourself up for long-term generosity. One of the biggest decisions that will have the biggest impact on your ability to be generous over the long term, particularly in Sydney, will be where or whether or when or if you buy a house. That will be. And even if you're not in that zone now, it's worth thinking it through biblically before you get to that time. Because if you buy, it can be, and it will really generally the case of this, if you buy over the long term, you will have more money. That eventually those repayments will stabilize or diminish, your income will go up, and if you're renting, the rents will just continue to go up even as your income goes up. So long term, you will have more money. But here's the catch. The motivation for buying a house will also be the motivation for what you do with that extra money when it comes. So if you buy with a mentality of generosity, when extra income becomes available, that's exactly what it's going to go towards. If your thought is, I want to steward my stuff well, and it's wise to have capital that's actually appreciating rather than just having a whole bunch of diminishing assets, it's wise to do this. And if you're thinking about it in terms of generosity, then when more income becomes available, you will actually know, you'll be able to take opportunities. You ought to say, look, uh, at the moment, Open Doors, is, uh, they've got an initiative. They want to smuggle half a million Bibles into a closed country. They need to raise the money over two weeks because there's a small window. I can drop 10 grand on that. I can dig into the loan. It's no problem. You've been wise with your finances, and it's actually there. Your heart was for generosity and will continue to be. But the problem is, if your heart is to buy because you've bought into the lie that unless you have a property, you will not be happy, that will continue to dictate how you spend money. And so what will happen is as more income becomes available, you will renovate, upgrade, sell, 
and the cycle will continue. That will be the pattern. Or worse than that, you may get so desperate to buy a house and you're so bought into the lie that without it you cannot be happy that you will get a loan that is, too, is way too leveraged where it's basically locked you in and that loan will master your life. It will decide how many children you'll have. It will decide where you live and when. It will decide how much time you get to spend with your kids and when you have to go back to work. That loan will decide which church you can or can't go to. It will, spend how much, it will determine how much time you can spend with your partner or your spouse. It will determine what kind of job you can have and whether you can have a job that you really enjoy and can invest in or whether you have to do one that you hate just to make enough money to pay it off. It will master you. And there are so many marriages and families and Christian lives that, have been, that are in ruins because they've been completely mastered by a loan. And though the wisest thing to do would just be to sell and liquidate and rent for a time, they can't because they are trapped by this lie and almost enslaved to it that I have to have a house. In slavery to a cruel master. And it's a live decision for us because for our family, this is something we've thought through. In the first year of City Light, we were looking to buy a house. We'd saved up for a deposit as we considered that wise to do, and it is. And there were a bunch of places that we were looking at uh, near enough to here so that we could actually be a part of this church and the church plan that was coming up. But over the first six months of that loan, I was going to be working on a part-time teacher's wage. The other two days I was working here at church. Later in the year, I knew that income would come through, but at the initial stages, I knew it wasn't. And so we had approval or a pre-approval uh, for a loan from the broker to go ahead with it. Uh, it was in, he, he said it was going to happen and easy enough. So we could have gone forward with the loan. But in the end, we decided not to because I thought, look, it's going to put us in a position where if anything knocks us, if any unexpected costs come through or anything, we're going to be in the red and we're going to be stressed out. And so we said, no, we'll lock it for six months and then we'll look at it after that once our income sort of improves. During that period, the, the housing market ran away 15%, and the rest after the year, the, the later part of the year, it rose to about 30% and locked us completely out of the market. Now, I'm 34 now, and the stats would say that once you're 44, if you do not own a house, you probably won't ever. So it's still a decade. That's ages to work through things. <laughs> and look, we will continue to save and spend wisely and, and, and work towards that because we think long-term that will put us in a position to be generous. But we have decided as a family that we will not make any major life decision based on money alone. That we will not buy simply because we believe we have to. That we won't put ourselves in a position where we cannot be generous and cannot fulfill the commands of God right now to be generous toward others and other things just because of that. We're called to steward God's money and to be as radically generous as we can with the short time we have on earth. And it will not be the case that on that final day when we stand before Jesus, we'll say, I was an idiot. I was too radically generous. I, I wish I could take it back. That will not happen. It is the case that money is deceptive and can convince us of many things and it taps into many fears and it takes a deep faith in the promises of God and trust in Him to not be mastered by it. There are prayers that we would be able to. And so here are a couple of things, because I know so often when he talks about money and we feel really convicted and we go, and nothing changes. So I want to give you three really practical things that you can do or start today to start thinking about how generosity might be, able, might be characterizing the way you spend. And the first one is this. Give away today. Today is in before midnight tonight. Give away. You might have heard the children's riddle 
what's always on what's always arriving but what does it know what's always on its way but never arrives tomorrow thank you at 11 it was a silence <laughs> i was like oh, no one got that in primary school all right um right it is the case that, that tomorrow is always arriving and yet never arrives and oftentimes that's the same with our generosity we're always like yeah i would love to do that and then it just never happens so look today you're alive you have time if you have cash do something today there are a bunch of things that you can do. Look, at City Light, you may have noticed we don't, do, like, we don't pass a plate or do anything like that because we, we don't expect visitors to prop up the church budget. Only those who are members and say, this is my church where I'm investing in the mission of this church. And so look, if that is you and you haven't considered your giving, that is one way to consider it. But look, as Mark said, for our operations budget, we're doing okay. The one that we would like to give away towards, though, is the 20% of our budget that we want to give away. The Asylum Seeker Center to Diamond Pregnancy Support, supporting women, single mothers with kids who are in a very vulnerable position, uh, to Open Doors. Tim gave me an update today that Open Doors has had more sign-ups for its prayer requests than ever, but less giving. And so they're looking like they may not make budget. So Christians, less yap-yap, more tap-tap, right? A lot more giving. <laughs> that's, I think that's in Proverbs. Um, to give away to the Edwards, who are doing God's work over in Italy. Look, any of those things, there are giving guides there, just give, do something. Look up an organization that, you, that you're committed to and want to, want to give towards and just do something today. Give away today. The second one would be this, make a budget. Do a budget today. Start it. You can get that out. I used the one, uh, Mark mentioned it before, you need a budget. The reason it matters, look, one author has put it this way. Uh, dry, uh, what is it? Spending without a budget is like driving without a speedo. And that's particularly dangerous if you're a male because you're like, yeah, I think I'm doing about 60. And meanwhile, it's like warp speed nine. Everything's like a blur around. You're like, yeah, I've got a pretty good handle on sort of where I'm at with speed. <laughs> the speedo is there so you know exactly what's happening. And I reckon, I reckon most of us, even when we have a generous heart, would be more generous if we just knew where the money was going. If you were to sit down at the beginning of the year and someone was like, this is what you're going to spend on coffee, you're like, there is no way I'll spend that much. And then at the end of the year, it just happens. Because money just hemorrhages out of our bank accounts. They're connected to so many different things. It just disappears. A budget is a way of knowing where's everything going and is that really where I want it to go. So even start that today. That it might bring about a deeper generosity. That you might know and steward the stuff that God's given you well. And lastly, thirdly, is to see the need. I think again, many of us have a, a genuine gospel heart and a desire to give and if we just saw the needs more clearly, we would absolutely give more. We would reorder our priorities completely. If there were kids in city kids who were dying of preventable disease, there is no way we would let that happen. If it was happening right outside our door, there is no way it would happen. But it's not. And it's going to take a deliberate, conscious effort as Christians to put those needs in front of our eyes that we might respond to them in right proportion. And so here's something to pray through that Mel, my wife, and I are praying through. And we want to be connected to God's global mission and to a church in particular that is in a context where, these, where there are significant needs to be addressed. And our desire would be to be connected to this, not just like over a year or to give to it at a certain time, but to be connected to it over the long term. That it might be something that we're praying towards, a mission that we can actually visit and support and take our kids with us, and somewhere where we actually know the names and faces of people. One of the things we found when we used to head to Fiji every year 
we ran a youth group and we'd go to the village every year to build houses. And one of the things there was when you actually saw and were a part of people's lives and saw how they lived, a lot of things fell back into perspective. Uh, the sense that you know, where we were living at the time was kind of not up to scratch, completely evaporated. You realize we are living around mental cash. This is ridiculous, right? Things like that all fall into proportion. But also, the people who are going through things aren't just some vague ad in the distance. They're real names and lives that you know about and cause you to, to invest in differently. And so we want to do this. Our parents are, my parents are over in... We don't have the same parents, just to be clear. My parents are over in Cambodia right now, and that's something that we're praying towards. Would that church community... Um, our cousin is involved in it. Is, is that something that God is calling us to be invested in over the long term? So that might be something that over the long term we can take our kids along to and say to them, look, we know that we can't buy you iPhone 7s for Christmas, but do you see why? Do you see where our money is going? So that they would understand why our, our lives are shaped around certain priorities. That it would give us perspective every time that we'd be like, yeah, that's right. God has, God has amply provided for us. If people in this context are saying God is generous, we are, we're out of control. And lastly, to keep mind of, of God's global mission. Look, maybe your missional community would, would commit to a certain area. There might be an indigenous community in Australia or another context overseas. You might have skills and gifts that could really bless or benefit a community or a church community overseas. You might be a, a teacher, a nurse, doctor, a builder, whatever skills you have that in another context would be incredibly valuable that you could invest in over the long term. Pray through it and act. Look it up. Look, in the end, as we kind of land this, maybe all of this, maybe all of this has gone way too far. Maybe Jesus didn't mean any of this. Maybe, maybe I have gone way over the top with application, with this generosity stuff. But I don't think it's the case. I mean, remember who this Jesus is. He's the Jesus who said, I tell you, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Is the Jesus who, when he met a rich young ruler, said to him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come and follow me. Is the Jesus who said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Even when summing up the very gospel, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. At the very heart of the gospel is an incredible act of self-giving and generosity. And the most logical and normal response to that would that it would be a play out in the way that we use our earthly possessions. Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. It will not be the case that we'll get to the end of our lives and regret having given away too much. Much of our relationship with money is built around fears and regrets and worries. It will not be the case that at the end of our days we will have thought, "I, I gave away way too much. In fact, to finish, Jim Elliott, a man who gave his life for the gospel, said this, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is not foolishness to be radically generous. Let's pray that God would do that work in our hearts individually and as a church community. Father, we pray that you would transform us, that you would give us, that you would overwhelm us, with such an understanding of what you have done through Christ, that it might move us to be generous. And we pray that this wouldn't be our duty or our reluctant effort, but that it would be out of joy and seeking deeper joy in you. That as we give, we'd experience something of, what, of the delight that you experience in being generous. That we know your word is true and it says that, 
that your son Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And so we pray that our hearts too would be moved by generosity. We pray that as individuals and as missional communities and as a church that we'd be marked by generosity, that our earthly treasures would show that they are not our treasure, but that in fact our treasure is Christ. And Father, we pray that this would be the case for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, as we do each week, we'd like to take a moment to think and to pray, and then we're going to respond in song in a moment. So take a moment to do that now.